Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Clawbacks are, as the name implies, a clause that a company would use with its employees, say, in an employment to be able to claw back money that the company had paid to the executives for some erroneous or improper reason. That was Matt Kelly. This is Tom Fox. Today in the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds, Matt and I take a deep dive into clawbacks. Both the DOJ in the form of the Monaco memo and the SEC in additional rulemaking required companies to not only put clawback provisions in executive contracts, but to specify more information about them in their reporting. Matt and I take a very deep dive into this subject. It's something every compliance professional needs to be thinking about today. Before we get started with our podcast, a quick word from our sponsor. Today, I'm back with Matt Kelly, and we're going to talk about clawback. So, Matt, first of all, welcome back. Hello, Tom. Always good to be here. Matt, you had a really interesting blog post last week on clawbacks. You have shamed and forced me into actually starting to write one in preparation for this podcast. So we've got a lot to talk about. But I thought maybe we could really start with the basics, which is what is a clawback and how has the law evolved around clawbacks since Sarbanes-Oxley? So... Clawbacks are, as the name implies, a clause that a company would use with its employees, say, in an employment contract, to be able to claw back money that the company had paid to the executives for some erroneous or improper reason, such as a CFO is getting incentive-based pay or a large equity bonus or something like that for hitting certain performance goals and financial chicanery to goose the financial performance of the company. And then they hit the goals, they get the money, and later on it comes out that this was accounting fraud. There's a restatement. The company might then try to claw back that money that it improperly gave to the CFO. You might also have clawbacks if the company was giving pay to a CEO who engaged in some sort of corruption. Not all Corruption or corporate misconduct has to result in a restatement, which I think is an important point that we can talk about. But for example, if you have an FCPA enforcement action and maybe the CEO hit a performance bonus because they hit sales goals based on corruption, that is reprehensible. It's misconduct. But FCPA actions do not result in financial restatements, nor would something like an antitrust enforcement action usually or maybe even some sort of corporate espionage or something like that. So there's a variety of clawback clauses you could employ. I do not know how widespread 
clawback clauses are. I get that they are probably fairly widespread, say, for named executive officers, but I don't know how far down the corporate organization clawback clauses are. You might encounter a situation where an employee is going to fight it, and we could talk about that too. But the reason we're talking about it here and now today is that, number one, the Justice Department is suddenly going clawback crazy, talking about how clawbacks are really going to be something that the department looks to for evidence that you have a strong culture of compliance is because your company is trying to claw back any compensation that might have gone to executives due to misconduct. And then just last week, the Securities and Exchange Commission got in on the act where it adopted a rule that had been required by the Dodd-Frank Act many years ago that all publicly traded companies must now have clawback clauses and disclose them in the annual report and disclose all your progress on any clawbacks you might currently be going through. And you have to put that in the annual report. So we have clawback action from the Justice Department, clawback action from the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's required by the Dodd-Frank Act, which the SEC never got around to doing until just last week. And then, Tom, Tom, refresh my memory, but I do think that they're also required in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. But that's so long ago, I'm a bit rusty on all of my history. So that's one of the things that surprised me, that it was required and actually implemented under Sarbanes-Oxley. And today, the Wall Street Journal, in an article on clawbacks, reported that within the past 12 months, the SEC has sued and or settled with 11 executives on clawbacks for misstatements in financial statements. Under Sarbanes-Oxley, it was direct participation in the financial statement that had to be restated, which led to the clawbacks. But I was frankly really surprised that this had been a part of the federal law for quite some time. As to the question or point you raised about our clawbacks used against non-executives or, or used in compensation of non-executives, I was also surprised to find the answers. Uh, it's now considered a best practices on a commission-based salesperson that a clawback provision be in place for some period of time after a sale is made. So, for instance, in the, I read several today that had a three- to six-month window where if a sale was voided or if a customer returned uh, products or other goods purchased, a commission based upon that sale could be clawed back if that commission, if the monies paid was beyond salary, i.e. bonus or commission. So we have to have two things. We have to have a written provision, and then we it's not on your salary. It's on some sort of additional payment, whether it's a commission or you're in a discretionary bonus based in part on your performance. You've articulated correctly what happened with Dodd-Frank, but I guess in looking back at this, Matt, in addition to finding out that this history is now 20 years old, we see how regulators have considered expanding out the use of clawbacks. The Dodd-Frank required the information you've stated, and it was put on hold during the Trump administration, but the requirement under Dodd-Frank was always there. The Securities and Exchange Commission Commission is simply now putting fo- putting that forward. However, when tied with the Lisa Monaco doctrine as articulated in the Monaco memo, now we have the DOJ talking about clawbacks. As well. And some of the commentators think that a clawback provision is actually the mirror or flip side of percentage or performance-based compensation. 
And so that in the salesperson example, one of the reasons you have a clawback is not simply if a salesman makes up a contract or there's some colluding, but he or she should have a long-term relationship with the client to basically ensure once they buy something, they they keep it. They don't return it. And so that it's seen as a best practice to help promote company, both in compensation and with the clawback there to promote that as well. A little more ubiquitous than I had thought and many compensation commentators have talked about they you really need to have both otherwise you have an asymmetrical bonus with no way to get it back i do see the sense of that but we should draw a distinction between sales employees who have clawbacks as part of the normal course of business a customer changes their mind and just returns the product and so you have to give back the bonus you might have got from that sale now that stinks for the salesman but there's no misconduct ex- implicit or explicit in that. It's just sometimes crap happens and you got a bad deal. So you, the salesman, you lose some of your money. That's different than what we are talking about here with the Justice Department and the Security and Exchange Commission. They are specifically talking about, number one, misconduct. You cooks, you broke law, you did something to goose financial performance that would not have otherwise happened, and therefore the company must claw back that money. And second, why does the company have to do that? Because if they don't, then they, the company, will be held responsible for not taking compliance and good conduct seriously. And the other thing that strikes me is the mandatory nature of what the SEC and the Justice Department are talking about here, that the SEC's actual language says the company must have and use a clawback clause, the word must, you must attempt to rescind or claw back the compensation that went due to misconduct or to a restatement or something like that. There is no option to say it's not really going to be worth it. We're not going to do it. You have to try it. And that's what the SEC requirement says. Not only do you have to try, but you have to disclose how well you are trying. Let me see if I can pull up exactly what you would need to report in your annual report would be estimates on the amount of erroneously awarded compensation, an estimate of how you're going to figure out the correct amount that should have been paid out, except for the restatement that put everything in play, the amounts recovered, the amounts still owed, the amounts foregone that I guess are unrecoverable, and you're just going to have to calculate all of that, and put it in the annual report, along with a copy of its clawback policy. And Tom, my other question is, who would these things apply to? Because the SEC's rule is vague on that. The SEC rule says that this must apply to all current or former executives who got incentive-based pay because of the reason. It doesn't say named executive officers only. It doesn't say the top five executives like you would normally see in like a disclosure of executive comp or who the named executive officers are. It's not just those people. It's potentially other people. And we don't necessarily know where that begins or ends. Now, maybe for sales executives, it is fairly straightforward that you would have some sort of clawback clause included in your employment agreement. But I could easily envision a scenario where, say, an assistant controller at the company engages in some sort of financial fraud that 
would maybe lead to some stock price. And if they have an equity grant, that's going to give them more money if they have options or just outright equity. But they might be further down the org chart, certainly than say the CFO or the corporate controller. And they don't, I don't know that they would have a, necessarily have an employment contract where they would have a clawback clause. So how do you spread the clawback clause to a large enough population? Are you going to make it something that goes in the employee manual that everybody signs when they're newly onboarded? Maybe that would work. I'm not clear on something like, what if this is related to a criminal action from the Justice Department and you, the company, claw back the money from the executive who is charged by the Justice Department and then gets acquitted? Do they get their clawed back money back? Because technically, the crime was, it, maybe it didn't happen, or they do, they weren't convicted of committing the crime. So would they be able to sue you to get the clawed back money clawed back to them? Lots of policy details that we could dance around all afternoon on this, and I'm not sure that we have a lot of clarity on how to answer those questions. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but those are the kind of things I wonder. So I guess the what I got from my historical review was, the evolution of the regulators thinking around clawbacks to the point where literally in the past few weeks, both the DOJ and the SEC have either introduced or reintroduced tools to try to either encourage ethical and compliant behavior or discourage illegal behavior. DOJ's pronouncements by Lisa Monaco really move beyond what the SEC has done under both Security Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank because they now move to cover executives who were not necessarily involved in the conduct at issue but had oversight roles mm-hmm. or may have led a division or an organization or a business unit and requiring them to pay back discretionary bonuses or other incentive compensation that they may have received based upon the illegal actions. The points you raise about criminal conduct and acquittal at trial, DOJ seemed to be saying, we want you to go after this money and these people in civil and quickly, and however you do it, being acquitted from a criminal trial or in a criminal trial is obviously not the same as a civil matter. Nevertheless, The DOJ has, I think, pushed the boundary of where the SEC went with this. And I guess I see an evolution of both regulators taking tools that may not have been designed for this. And in the DOJ's case, making it now a part of a best practice compliance program. I think so. And I've been giving some thought to how the DOJ and SEC clawback pushes do and don't overlap. In some ways, I would say the SEC rule goes further because it is a rule. They're not trying to get companies to do anything. If you're a publicly traded company, you have to do this, full stop. This is not a proposed rule or anything. This is done. This rule is adopted and you're going to have to do it. I The exact timing of it is, I think, a bit unclear, but I certainly by the end of 2023, for annual reports that come out in early 2024, You'll have to have all of these ducks lined up in a row if you are a publicly traded company. That said, this rule from the SEC and echoing what the SOX requirements are, they're all related to restatements. A lot of corporate misconduct is not does not necessarily lead to a restatement. 
Now, the Justice Department has a wider range. It could apply to private companies. It could apply to nonprofits and organizations. But the Justice Department, like, it's not a rule. You don't have to do it. The Justice Department will use a very big stick to beat you over the head if you don't do it. And I would advise companies to think long and hard about not adopting these clauses. But, you know, that's something that's just going to come up in your settlement talks. And I'm sure they could make it exquisitely painful if you don't do it. But it's not required as regulatory rule is. So I'm still I'm curious to see how this goes. And not only that, but we should remember, I think, Tom, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the SEC is strongly hinting that it is going to come up with some sort of approach or policy or something that the more you use a clawback, the more consideration the Justice Department will give a company on monetary penalties. The assistant AG for the criminal division, Kenneth Polite, he said as much in a speech he gave in September. Pretty much the same point is included in the text of the Monaco memo, that they are looking at clawback clauses and looking to alleviate the burden of monetary penalties against shareholders. Read between the lines, folks. They are saying if you claw back money from the executives, that will count as some sort of offsetting thing against potential monetary penalties. I'm still curious how this all works out on a time horizon, because a lot of this could unfold over a period of years. Certainly, like trying to figure out a financial restatement, that at the least can take many months and would not be at all unusual for a large restatement, big enough that you'd be clawbacking the, from the CEO. That could take a year or more. And then what if the CEO wants to take you to court? Now, Tom, you raised the point that this could be a civil action between the company and its former employer. Yes. And I would then wonder, okay, and if the criminal action falls apart, would the wronged executive or the exonerated executive not have some sort of potential civil action back against the company? I don't know. Maybe this has already been adjudicated in some format somewhere, and there's case law on it that I don't know about. If there is, somebody write in, let us know. But there's an awful lot of ways that this could become very complicated. And that's all separate from just the routine complication of this SEC rule that you will have to figure out things like how did we get the compensation wrong if we had a restatement? What would the correct calculation be? What if somebody's going to challenge the restatement then and say you got the accounting wrong and actually, no, this wasn't, it didn't have to be restated. I got the accounting great. I could see a CFO trying to make that argument. But there'll be a lot of calculations that the HR department, the finance department, maybe your payroll department, your legal department, your secretary, they'll all have to go through this, actually does get disclosed in the 10K should you go through a restatement? And this is all coming, at least on the SEC side. Now, how does it work out with the Justice Department? That's an even grayer gray area, but this unto itself, this is not a crystal clear area, I don't think, with the SEC. Let me go back to the point you raised in the context of the Monaco memo and the stick the DOJ might use to encourage companies to take these clawback provisions and move against former executives. I think also, in the Monaco memo, one of the factors in determining a monitorship was whether a company clawback provision had actually used it going forward. So in addition, it seems like they've created probably not a new hallmark of an effective compliance program because it falls under the incentives and disincentives hallmark, but they've certainly created something new that companies now need to factor in as part of their overall compliance program. And it seems if you're going to be a 
one, on the effectiveness of your compliance program, and two, whether it's going to cause you to have a monitor or avoid a monitor, that's going to be something companies think long and hard about. They will think long and hard about it, and I hope all of them think smartly about it, which would probably not be that long and hard then. Just use the clauses. I am in favor of having clawback clauses. I'm just pointing out that this could be quite complicated. And not only that, just one extra dimension I'll throw in there. Has anybody considered how that clauses might intersect with corruption largely done by third parties working on your behalf? Do you have some sort of contractual clawback with them? What if they are an overseas third party that just vanishes into the wind? What are you going to do? I don't know how often a scenario like that would come up, but I look forward to the fact pattern that lets us talk about that in more detail. But by and large, I do think we should keep our eye on the ultimate ball here, which is that the SEC and the Justice Department separately in a rough coordinated fashion are trying to further the cause of holding individuals accountable for corporate misconduct. And that is going to require the corporation as a whole, the senior management or the board or whoever is in charge there, to really develop mechanisms to hold individuals accountable when they commit wrongdoing. This is very much of a piece of companies will need to turn over incriminating documents very quickly. That's going to the same thing. This executive clawback effort, this that's pointing to the same thing. It is all pointing to the idea of trying to hold corporate individuals accountable for misconduct that happens at the corporation. So how do the corporate overseers at your business think about that and develop the right types of mechanisms that will A, work, B, keep the regulators happy and see, yep, they do have a culture of compliance because they are keeping their eye on that ultimate ball. You know, in listening to you, Matt, I'm hearing echoes of the CCO certification, but a different type of certification. You're a business executive who's not a compliance officer is essentially certifying with his pay that nothing askance has gone on his watch on the ship. Whether he's a captain, whether he's an XO, whether whatever part of the ship he's running, nothing askance better come out of it because he's certified with his discretionary bonus compensation, all of which seems to be what our colleague Karen Woody said is really additional heat and additional pressure the DOJ is putting on companies in the form of the Monaco memo. Well, funny that you open that can of worms. Let's just crank it open and dump them on the table. Because in the world of Sarbanes-Oxley compliance, this is exactly what we already have, is that the CEO and the CFO must certify that the financial statements are accurate and free of material misstatements. And what has happened since then is that we have had this whole big rigmarole of sub-certification, sub-certification, that anybody who has anything to do with financial controls and disclosures must certify up the chain of command, yes, this is all accurate. Part of the reason that exists is because CEO and the CFO do not want to see their money clawed as a restatement because somebody nine levels down the ladder screwed up the finances that I accidentally certified. So we have this big rigmarole of SOX 404 certifications and this regime of sub-certifications. I could envision a scenario where we do that for many other types of corporate misconduct because now the pressure is on. If we commit misconduct, I might have 
lose my incentive pay. Maybe I, the CEO, would lose it, even though I didn't actually have anything to do with the misconduct. It happened three or four levels down and two or three divisions over in the emerging markets. I didn't know that. And at a company with maybe 100,000 employees, that's not implausible that there could be serious misconduct going on. And the CEO really doesn't know about it. So if the CEO might stand to lose his or her executive pay because of a clawback, are they going to adopt this expanded realm of sub-certifications for all sorts of misconduct? I don't know, but that's a lot of worms that are now out of the can. And I think that we're going to have a we're going to have a lot to think through about this. As I recall in the Monaco memo, she directed Department of Justice to come up with some ways to recommend to corporations to implement clawback provisions. So it's, I think the DOJ has some obligation to give us some additional information on the mechanisms they would propose or would want to see going forward. Did I remember that correctly? I do not know off the top of my head, but morally, yes, it would be a big headache. So if the Justice Department wants to put it out there, they might as well assist in trying to figure out how to do this. Raises the interesting question, how much do line prosecutors actually know about the wise structure of compensation agreements? I'm not clear on that. There's a lot of very smart prosecutors out there, but there's also a lot of career prosecutors who don't necessarily know how corporate operations work because they don't have much in-house corporate experience. And this is just a this is a far more complicated process in practice than the novel idea, or not novel, but the praiseworthy idea of let's hold wrongdoing executives accountable. I think that's great as a big idea. I think there's an awful lot of devil in the details. I would certainly agree with that. And I suspect we'll have the opportunity to revisit this in the future. I think so, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I've got a special five-part podcast series running on innovation and compliance about the intersection of supply chain and compliance. We take a look at ESG drivers, product compliance, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, the Scope 3 Emissions Responses, and Responsible Minerals. This podcast series is sponsored by Ascent Compliance. If you're interested in the intersection of ESG and supply chain, this podcast is the podcast for you. Check it out on the Innovation and Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.